0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Excuse me while I switch on all the various pieces of technology that I've been given to switch on. Uh, Okay, just find the talk now. Okay. I found this a really difficult talk to prepare. I'm not quite sure why, but, I mean, I never prepare talks very much in advance, as some of you know. But I just could not turn my mind to this talk at all. I've known for a couple of weeks I was going to do it. And every time I'd think, oh, I've got, you know, half an hour, I'll think about this talk. I just couldn't do it. (laughs) And even yesterday afternoon, I went into my room and thought, come on, you know, you don't, you've only got whatever to do this. And I spent an hour on Facebook. <laughs> uh, where's Vajratara? Is she here? I was not looking at, you know, stupid Buddha quotes, I just meant to say that. I, mean, I couldn't quite figure out why I was finding it so difficult and i think there were a couple of reasons which had kind of merged in a way and one of them was that i've been quite preoccupied by worldly affairs in the last sort of week maybe in particular i'm always quite you know i do watch the news and i do follow things and i do you know get quite um i'm interested in current affairs, not just here, but I do keep up with Australian politics and American politics, which is probably a bit too much. But I do, I, I want to know what's happening in the world that matters to me. But actually, in the last week, I've just found that has hit overwhelm for me. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't need to go into the details of that. I'm sure you'll know. You know, I was very, very, no, I was not surprised, but very distressed at Parliament's decision to extend their strikes from Iraq into Syria. I'd been quite involved. we have been quite um, interested around here in the refugee kind of crisis that's happening worldwide. And so I've been following stories of the refugees from Syria and then somehow adding to that that, well, we're just going bomb. I just found it really, really distressing. And also I've been very aware of the climate, talks that are happening at the moment in Paris and of course what happened in Paris a couple of weeks ago it's just felt I, I feel like I you know I'm really struggling I've been struggling a bit to keep my head above water in a certain kind of way so somehow thinking alongside that how do you give a talk about the lineage of inspiration in what is a very painful burning world and yet somehow it's so it's even more important than usual so I, I think it was something about those things coming together that just made it feel very very difficult to sit down and and really turn my mind to what would I like to share with you around this lineage of inspiration I mean, I'm done my best and the other reason another reason is it's such a big topic you know it's everything it's massive It's like, how do you talk about the sunshine or something like that? It's just everywhere and everything. It underpins everything in my life, the lineage of inspiration. It's the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, if I may borrow Dylan Thomas. The force that drives the water through the rocks drives my red blood. It feels to me like that's what the lineage of inspiration is for me. It's what makes my blood flow around my body. It's what makes me get up in the morning. Because honestly, without that, I don't know if I would get up in the morning, really. You know, especially because I'm one of these people that hears the news sometimes in the morning quite early. I'm often awake very early. You know, what would get you out of bed in that world if there wasn't something that... that could flow through us so it's the lifeblood of my practice and it's the lifeblood of tree ratna I think this lineage of inspiration is what makes tree ratna tree ratna and not something else so these two things come together well these things come together for me the idea of just how hard it is sometimes to get up in the morning and hear the news alongside uh, this real deep inspiration for what we've got and what we've been given and they come together in Shantideva's Bodhichari Avatara where he says virtue is perpetually ever so feeble while the power of vice is great and extremely dreadful. If there were no spirit of perfect awakening, what other virtue could overcome this? I could just finish there, because in a way that does kind of say it all. But I won't. I'll carry on. So this spirit of perfect awakening is bodhicitta. It's the very heart of the bodhisattva ideal. It's the overcoming of that separation of self and other. The overcoming of the over-identification with me and mine at the expense of them and theirs. And that is so much what underlies all the things that you know, are happening in the world. Whether that me and mine is to do a small group or a nation state or a series of nation states, it's very much the polarisation of the world that is at root of so many of the world's problems. So I felt the need, and I feel the need for this to stay alive every day more strongly. Actually, it's been there for me since the start. Since I walked through the door of the Glasgow Buddhist Centre in October 1977. I was young. And I was an angry young woman. I was fueled with rage about injustice. I was fueled with rage about homophobia. I was fueled with rage about war. I was fueled with rage about poverty. I was basically fueled with rage. I was probably not a very pleasant person. And um, I came into the Centre in Glasgow looking for a way to change the world that was not based on politics or opposition. I couldn't probably have even articulated that at the time. I don't think I stood there in... Uh, it wasn't Sucky Hall Street, actually, it was previous to that. It was up in uh, beside the Botanical Gardens. And I don't think I stood there thinking... I really went away to change the world that goes beyond politics. (laughs) I think I was just desperate, actually, because I had, you know, all that sense of how awful things were and not an awful lot of ways to deal with that. And uh, I found the Dharma. I found out that hatred never ceases through hatred in this world. Through love alone does it cease. This is the eternal law. And again, I don't think the first night I was there, MD read that from the Dhammapada. But the, you know, the Bodhisattva ideal was very alive in the movement at that time. It's 1977. It was very alive in Glasgow. Banti had given these talks on the Bodhisattva ideal not that long before that. It was the first, the second series of things that I listened to. We played them in the Glasgow Centre. Do you remember when we used to sit in Buddhist centres and listen to Banti exactly. talking? Uh, and it would have even been a reel-to-reel. It wasn't even a cassette, it was a reel-to-reel. And uh, we'd all sit round right in a circle and nod off. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember we used to have this class on a Friday night, sometimes, uh, where we listened to take lectures. And, of course, you'd work till a week and you'd rush to get up there for this class and then you'd sit down and go... <laughs> <laughs> But this man was just speaking the truth and there was no way of avoiding it. It was so, so inspiring. And I think that the, um, the body sat by a deal was so alive in the FWBO and the WBO at that time. People talked about it all the time. It was very, very present. Sometimes think that's maybe diminished a little bit. Be, you know, not entirely, but it's good to bring it back. Anyway, the first thing that I heard when I found the Dharma, I didn't just find the Dharma, I found Bhante. You know, the very first night I went into the centre, I was not interested in meditation at all. I went because I wanted to change the world. And I saw a poster that said, Change your mind, change the world. And I thought, OK, where do I sign up? And I went to to listen to, it was a series of four lectures called um, Buddhism for Today and Tomorrow which we all called the Brighton Lectures because they'd been given in the Brighton Dome, I think, uh, maybe two years earlier, a year earlier or something, 1976. So uh, I went along to hear them. I missed the first one, which is interesting. I always think this is quite amusing because I missed the one that's called The Method of Personal Development. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to catch up on that later. (laughs) So the others, just to remind you, called a vision of human existence the nucleus of a new society and a blueprint for a new world. It was so up my street. We didn't agree with everything that Sangrachita was saying in them, but this vision of seeing through conditioned co-production—it was like I was going to say like getting cold water thrown in, but it was much kinder than that. But it was such a wake-up. Like this is this is the truth. I really knew I was hearing the truth. And then the idea of creating a new society and a blueprint for a new world, it was like, where do you sign up? You know. So they really, really spoke to me. And actually, I have never doubted the Dharma since that day that I walked through the centre door. And I've never doubted Banti's exposition of it. I've never doubted Banti as my teacher. I haven't always got on well with Banti. Well, I do got on well with Banti, but we've had our... I haven't agreed with everything that he's uttered, and you know I've told him that from time to time, and uh, we've had quite robust communication about that and other things. But nevertheless, I've never at any moment I've doubted the movement at times, and I've doubted some of my fellow order members, which says as much about me as anything else. But I've never doubted the efficacy of the Dharma as taught by Banti. And I've never doubted that the FWBO, WBO, Tree Ratna could offer a force for good in the world. Never, not for one single minute. So I felt I had found the force that through the green fuse would drive the flowering of my human life. And I've tried to serve that ever since. And I hope I can continue to have the health and welfare and energy to continue to serve that. So what I'm going to do actually is just share some memories of moments of inspiration about Bante and how that lineage of inspiration has touched me through my contact with Bante, both direct contact and indirect contact. But what I want to do first of all is just give the outline of the four lineages because a number of people have asked me about this and said, where does this come from? And Rana Darney mentioned on Thursday night that it was at a college meeting and a Q&A that Banty um, talked. As far as we know, that was the first time he was thinking aloud. But I might be we might be wrong about that. He might have talked about it elsewhere, but if so, I hadn't actually come across it. So I'm going to lead you, read you quite a long quote, so, you know, don't try and probably be difficult to scribble down every word of it. And, uh, yeah... Anyway, it's, it's about all four lineages. So this must have been before 2010, because he still talks about the FWBO. So there was a question asked, which was, yesterday when we met, we talked about the concept of lineage. You said that you felt there is definitely a transmission that happens at ordination, and that something has come through you, Banti, to us as a college And that we continue that. Could you say more, please? Because that was a question. And then he gives quite a long answer. He says, well, I'd say there's a sort of threefold lineage. There's a lineage of teaching. Because in the FWBO, we have our own approach to the Dharma, which has been mainly determined by the books I've written and the talks I've given and so on. And there's the tradition of a certain way of teaching the Dharma, a certain view of the Dharma. So that's the lineage of teaching. Then there's the lineage of practice. That is to say, all the practices I've taught, the mindfulness of breathing, the, the bhavana, various sadhanas, the six element practice, reflection on the nidanas, and so on and so forth. And of course also, one can say, into that stream or lineage may have entered certain emphases given by certain order members. So that's the lineage of practice. It's really interesting, some of this. And then there's what I call the lineage of inspiration. Because from me to others, and from others to yet others, one might say, There flows something which isn't just the teachings and isn't just the practices. There's something above and beyond that, which is communicated personally and which I know many people experience at the time of their ordination. So I think it's very important to keep these three lineages alive and flourishing. One keeps the lineage of teaching alive by study, especially study of some of Banti's writing, it's just still Banti speaking, by the way, especially some of Banti's writing, which, he says, I think are sometimes rather neglected, if I may say so, within our order as a whole, or even our movement as a whole. And then there's the lineage of practice, which is kept up, obviously, by practice And by handing on different practices to succeeding generations. And the lineage of inspiration can only be communicated by personal contact. (laughs) It's as though something is transmitted. There's the threefold transmission and this is what needs to be carried on. So it was quite a blast hearing that actually in this college meeting. And um, he also then goes on to say, and of course one could say there's the framework, the organisational lineage, that also has its own importance. The structures need to be carried on, and in some cases perhaps modified, if they no longer fulfil their original purpose. So that's it. There's quite a lot for you all to think about, isn't there? (laughs) We nodded. <laughs> so all these lineages are of incredible importance and they make up, when we bring them together, they make up what is Ratna. And inspiration underlies them all. Without inspiration, the practices can just become dull and mechanical. They can become techniques. However wonderful they are, they can become techniques if they're not actually held with inspiration. The teachings, the lineage of teachings, I think, can become dogmatic and hard if they're not held in that lineage. And obviously, any organisation can become bureaucratic. So rather than an organisation becoming the structures through which this inspiration can flow, we have to be careful that if the inspiration dries up, then they, they become ends in themselves. And who wants that? But, however, for inspiration to stay alive, it needs channels. So they're all kind of very interconnected. It, by talking about inspiration, I'm not talking about froth. You know, I'm not talking about like, yay, you know, which sometimes is how inspiration manifests. You know, sometimes I can feel very inspired and it can come over as, and it can even tip into intoxication sometimes. So that's not what I'm talking about. It's not the Pepsi Coke advert. It's uh, something much deeper that comes. There's a, a country and western song that says I went to drink from a deeper well. I think it's Christian actually, but you no. Know. So we need to be drinking from that deeper well for this inspiration to continue to flow. And thinking about this while I was trying to get my mind to move towards this talk i suddenly thought that in some ways this what i've just said about the inspiration staying alive through the channels but the channels needing the inspiration and that um, relationship makes sense in another way of the debates that we've been having around commonality of practice because in a sense it gives uh, for me it kind of makes sense of what we're trying to keep alive and how important it is that there's relationship there and that those practices that we teach continue to be in relationship, that the teachings that we emphasise continue to be in relationship. And in a way, I thought it also kind of makes sense about the discipleship question. I mean, why one likes the word or not? You know, what Banty said about what he expects from the order, as he sees it from his disciples, is the holding true to those lineages and actually helping them to, to stay alive and to spread. <clears throat> so we're trying to find a way of keeping alive that lineage of inspiration that's come to us from the Buddha through Bhante. And as you know, you, you hear this quite often, don't you? It has to be caught, not taught. I think it can be taught as well, but it probably needs both because I think it's good to articulate it as well as hope that it'll happen, (laughs) in a way. I recently came across this very short poem by a 14th-century Persian poet, Hafiz. I caught the happy virus last night when I was out singing beneath the stars. It is remarkably contagious. Kiss me. (laughs) I actually came across it when I was preparing the talk for the urban retreat on um, living in the Greater Amandala. I'd remembered, I knew I'd heard it somewhere and I managed to find it. I was so pleased with myself. I caught the happy virus last night when I was out singing beneath the stars. It is remarkably contagious. Kiss me. <laughs> I guess what the kiss me is, is let me share it with you. Yeah. So I'm going to share my inspiration with you in the time I have left. I don't mean the time I've left in this world. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded a bit ominous. <laughs> Although I'd hoped for that to be true as well, but I meant this morning. <laughs> so the story of Banty's inspiration and his drinking from that deeper well goes back a lot further than our contact with him. I'm not going to go all the way back. I went to start at a moment in 1956, when some of you were not even born. Hopefully quite a few of you weren't even born. (laughs) (laughs) At least a few. And many of us were toddlers, wee things. In 1956, a number of things happened, but one of them was that Bhante took his Bodhisattva ordination from Dardor Rinpoche. In 2006, I was talking to Bhante about Bodhisattva uh, ordinations. And he, in that personal conversation, Bhante told me that that moment was the happiest moment of his life when he took that ordination from Dardar I was really, I I don't know, there's something about him just saying that. And he said it in a very matter-of-fact way, but he said, yes, it was the happiest moment of his life. It made sense of everything that had happened before and it opened it to everything that happened after. It was, you could say, a fulcrum moment in Sangharakshita's life. He said it gave meaning and shape to things that he had been struggling with, in a way. And you get that sense if you read his biographies, which if you haven't done, I do recommend. You know, it's really good to get that way into Bhante as well. Banty's very intuitive. He often acts and then articulates the why of the action later. He said that himself, and recently subuti reminded us of that in the college meeting. He was, for various reasons, he was talking about how Banty works like that quite often, and um, he lacked from a very deep intuition. And again, I think it's drinking from that deeper well. And then he makes sense of what has happened or he can articulate the reasoning behind it. And um, Sabuti was talking about how in the early days of the movement, Banti was articulating as he went along. And in fact, those four talks that I mentioned are very much part of that articulation. You know, it was 1976. The ordering movement had only been going for a few years, really. And uh, he gave this series of talks. And there's also the poem that came around about the same time of The Four Gifts. Mm -hmm. And in both of those things, in different ways, he's articulating what the FWBO, as it was, had to offer the world. It had a vision of human... Oh, yeah, it had a method of personal development. (laughs) It, uh, It had a vision of human existence. It was really able to offer some kind of nucleus of a new... Society, which was the order, and a blueprint for a new world, which was that the order and the movement moving outwards and affecting society. So he was articulating at that point what we could offer. He founded a movement, and he was able to say from the very beginning that it was neither exclusively monastic nor exclusively lay. But that was part of him then articulating the centrality of going for refuge. So kind of, if you read the history of my going for refuge, you get a sense that he kind of, you know, he was very clear about how he went the movement and the order to be, but then he could say why. Yeah. So I just think that's very interesting. So when um, Banti took that ordination from Dardar he studied with Dardar a set of Bodhisattva precepts. One of those precepts was the ethics of gathering. That was part of the ethics of benefiting sentient beings. And the actual precept says, he attracts a Dharma following by correctly giving himself as a resource. I think we could say he's fulfilled that particular (laughs) Bodhisattva precept. So a Sangha's commentary on that precept, uh, he says, Furthermore, the Bodhisattva, with the ethics of gathering, performs an act of gathering by attracting a crowd of sentient beings. With no thought of self-interest, backed only by a thought of mercy, he gives himself as a resource. So our order and our movement, I think we can see as springing directly in relationship to that Bodhisattva ordination. I can say that with great confidence, because I went said it in a talk where Banti was sitting. It was in the USA in 93 or something. It was at the ordinations of Karina and Saramati. And I gave this talk about the significance of ordination for the world. Some Manjivadja gave one about the significance for America. And then Sabuti got to do the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to slip into the cosmos, but then he went on. With it. Anyway... Um, and in that, I said something like I've just said, and Banty had introduced the three of us, and he was sitting to inside. It's a bit nerve wracking giving a talk with Banty there, as many of you will know. And uh, sometimes it's hard to read his expression. Anyway, when I said that, he was nodding, so I thought, Phew, that's good. <laughs> so I do, I think we should take that. Should sorry. I think it would be wonderful <laughs> if we really took that seriously, that we spring from Bhante having taken that Bodhisattva precept. That's what our lineage of inspiration actually is. And I probably wouldn't have time to... I've got here come back to this, but I wouldn't have time to come back to it. But that's the vision of Adhisthana. Adhisthana's vision is very much to keep alive those lineages, and it's very much to be a place of gathering where our order, our movement and beyond can gather together and really take our lineages further. Anyway, back to Bante. So I was very fortunate, I'm very fortunate in my connection with Bante. So the very first night that I went into the Glasgow Buddhist Centre, at the end of the evening, there was had been this talk about the vision of existence. I had all these questions. My background before going along to the movement had been in the political arena and I had gone to, well... A variety of left-wing groups Uh, started with the Communist Party and moved a bit further left and uh, for any of you, and I know some of you have been involved in that world, debate is not always gentle (laughs) so at the end of this talk I was like, what did you mean and what's this and what's that I think the guys running the class sort of thought, oh my god, who's come in here, so anyway I had a really good uh, little conversation Uh, (laughs) particularly with Danavir and Ajita. And then uh, Damarati appeared. He'd been doing a night shift. He came in and I said, oh, I know you. And he said, I know you. And we worked out later how we knew each other. Anyway, he, I said, oh, your name's Ian, isn't it? He said, no, it's Damarati. And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, oh, it means he who delights in the Dharma. And I was like, what's the Dharma? So he then gave me a kind of six-week <laughs> Dharma course between 10 o'clock and 3 a.m., <laughs> and a beautiful friendship was forged. Anyway, he suggested I take away and read The Three Jewels. So I took it home, you know, the book, The Three Jewels. I read it in two days or something, and I sent Banty an extremely long letter full of questions. <laughs> and he responded, he answered all my questions... And he invited me to go and meet him at Padmaloka. He told me afterwards he was so excited that somebody had actually (laughs) gone through the the three jokes (laughs) and written out, you know, really kind of written all these questions. So Anyway, uh, so I went the following February or March, so it was about four months later. I'd just become a Mitra, and I went along to meet Banti. And my mother had just died uh, maybe uh, two weeks before, something like that. And he was just so kind to me. And he just was really interested and listened. And I told him about my mother's death being the end of a very long line of deaths that had happened in my family over a two-year period. And he just, he he actually said to me, oh, that's unusual. I thought, is it? Mm-hmm. You know when you something is what happens to you, you just think it's what happens. So anyway, it was very kind of... I felt like I made a real connection. And it was also very stimulating. We talked for about two and a half hours. And then over the next few years, I've got loads of examples of seeing Banty on fire. So I want to share a few of them with you. So they're not personal. They're more events, as it were. And quite a few of you here will have been at some of them. So I'm sure you'll remember them. Uh, the first one was Padmasambhava Day talk at the LBC mm-hmm. in 1979. So this was a talk which Banti gave. Um, it, I, if I remember correctly, the LBC hadn't been open very long, and it was the dedication of the thing above the gates, the thing with the Nallanda Crest, Crest. Crest. Yeah, I think it was the same day as that, because I've got a vague memory of us all standing in the courtyard, in the cold. And then going into the shrine room for this talk. And he gave it without notes. It was really long. And if you've never heard this talk, I really recommend it. It was Banti on Fire. And uh, he talks about Padmasambhava as a tertön. And he talks about finding termas. And I'm going to read you quite a bit of this talk because I'm going to, the, the rest of this talk basically quotes from different things about Banti and a few comments. So I know it's quite hard sometimes to take in quotes, but just relax and let them flow. So in, he's quoting from the life and liberation of Padmasambhava in this talk. And he's talking about the figure of uh, Tarpanagpur, who's kind of like, well, I'm not going to go into details. Going to look it up. Anyway, he uh, he's talking um, about that. And then he he goes on to talk. So I'm going to read you a bit of this he's talking about a visit he makes to the city of london so he's been driven through the city of london when i say the city i mean the city with a capital c where the stock exchanges and all the banks and that sort of thing so as we drove through i just looked from side to side skyscraper to the right of me skyscraper to the left banks to the right banks to the left All these big, ponderous buildings, all connected with money, all connected with high finance, and all connected with power. I said to this friend who was driving me, referring to the FWBO, this is what we're up against. This is one of the demons, because in the Life and Liberation, there's a lot of talk of demons, and Tharpanagpur's a big demon, big one. And he says, this money, this power, where it has got out of control, it's out of control of the spiritual principle, and that is a demon. So there are economic demons, there are social demons, sociological demons, political demons, even religious demons. And you must not think of these demons as just sort of mythological beings, you know, nice fairy story type. All rather nice, but you never really meet a demon. You are meeting demons all the time, of one kind or another. We live in a world of demons. So what does this mean? This is still bounty. If you want to express this in a few words, you find the remedy where you find the disease. The remedy is found deep in the depth of the disease you must understand the disease to arrive at the remedy if you plunge deeply as it were into the body of Tharpanagpur you will find treasure you don't have to go outside the world to find the transcendental you go very deeply into it you utilize its forces and its energies you integrate them You dig deep into this gigantic, festering, foul body and that's where you find treasure. So that is what's generally signified by the figure of the terton, the terma, the treasure. This is the sort of thing we have to do. We have to think of ourselves as living in a world of scattered energies and we must claim them, collect them and incorporate them into our spiritual life into the life of the spiritual community so that our individual spiritual lives are reinforced and the collective is reinforced. We have to go out in various directions and this is what we are doing with our centres, our communities and our co-ops. Remember them? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a transforming and transfiguring agency. That is what our whole movement is. It's a stream of spiritual energy, you might say, which transforms, which should deeply transform and transfigure everything and everyone with whom it comes into contact. So so that was one occasion. And I remember quite clearly sitting in that room and just being electrified by this. And it really did feel like a transmission. I mean, I, I remember feeling sick, actually, at the end. I just felt like... You know, I was being handed this. You know, I, was, I think I was a Mitra. I think I'd asked for ordination, but, I, you know, I think, my God, what am I, you know, what am I moving into here? It was so huge, but I just was so inspired by that. I found it so exciting, life-changing. And then there was the Vimalakirti Nardesha series, which is often talked about by older members of my generation and older when they talk about Bante. In his heyday, but they were amazing. They were this series of six, six or eight, eight lectures that Banty gave in Old Street, and I see quite a lot of people nodding that were there. So, for those of you that know London geography, they were in uh, the East West Centre in Old Street, which is a particular bit of London. It's near the East End, and I lived in a women's community in Fulham, which is in the southwest. And every night after this talk, we got lost. We never once made it home without getting lost. There were about five of us in this old transit van rattling around and we'd be talking about the talk and, you know, could have completely... And on one famous occasion, we found ourselves on the North Circular. (laughs) I mean, you probably all know those talks really well, but if you've only read them... I recommend listening to them. There's something different about hearing Banty giving talks than just reading the edited version on a page. I mean, the edited versions are great for study, but there there was really something about just being in that room. Again, it was just before my ordination, and it was absolutely electrifying, and it it just made me feel, yes, this is definitely where I'm going to be. And then I think this is the last one. Uh, It was a talk called Buddhism, World Peace and Nuclear War, which quite a lot more of you would have been at. It was in the 80s. And it was uh, one of the opening talks for the Croydon, for um, the Arts Centre. There was a series of talks on Buddhism and different things. I'm not quite sure why Banty chose to talk about world peace and nuclear war. I can't remember what was happening in the world at the time, if there was something particular happening. It was about 80 i think there were cnd marches marches, yeah it must have been current yeah the first series was on non-violence oh that's what it was so it was a series on non-violence thank you and banti chose to talk about this so i remember this evening really well i was living at the lbc and i was in a really bad mood i wasn't just in a bad mood i was in a bad mood with banti and I can't quite remember why. It was because I'd heard something that he'd said to somebody. It was probably something about men and women, but I wouldn't like to... I wouldn't, as they say in Spain, put my hand in the fire on that, because I can't actually quite remember. But I'd heard somebody had said, you know, Banty says blah, 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 and I was in a really bad mood about it. I'm not going to Croydon to listen to him giving a talk. Anyway, I did. And, uh, oh, my goodness... When I think I nearly didn't go because that was another one of those talks that just left me completely. So I'm going to read you a bit of that as well, and again you're probably familiar with this, but again it just at the end of this talk I just went to get up and prostrate. I mean I didn't. I held myself back, but uh, there was something about this talk that just made me think, you know. Peace has become a seamless garment and the world has either to wear the whole garment or go naked to destruction. (sighs) There can no longer be any question of a scrap of peace covering one part of the world's nakedness and not another. This makes it impossible for us to think in merely geopolitical terms. We have to think in geoethical, geo-humanitarian, geo- philanthropic terms. Peace is indivisible, so the stark choice before us is either world peace or no peace. One world or no worlds. We shall be able to achieve peace only if we realize that humanity too, is indivisible, and we consistently act upon that realization. In other words, we shall be able to achieve peace only by regarding ourselves as citizens of the world and learning to think not in terms of what's good for this or that nation state, this or that political system or ideology, but simply and solely in terms what is good for the world, for humanity. And we must identify ourselves more closely with all living beings and love them with a more ardent and selfless love. We shall have to be a louder and clearer voice of sanity and compassion in the world. Above all, we shall have to intensify our commitment to the great ethical and spiritual principle of non-violence, both in respect to relations between individuals and in respect to relations between groups. So this talk was given in 80-something, the early 80s, and he ends it by saying, The situation in which we find ourselves today is dangerous in the extreme. Perhaps more dangerous for humanity than any other period in history. Time is running out. Whether we shall be able to achieve world peace, we do not know. We can but do our best in a situation which, to a great extent, is not of our personal making. So, not of our personal making. You know, there's a hashtag at the moment, not in my name. And lots and lots of people are posting things on social media saying, not in my name. No way, it doesn't really matter. All we can do is just keep committing ourselves personally and as an organisation as a community to work in for those forces of, of good. So the lineage of inspiration for me is the force that fights, the force that, um, that set that... Oh, how to put it? I don't want to do it in polarised terms, so going back to Shantideva, it's that force that overcomes the polarisation between good and evil because when man's good... <laughs> you know, is another man's evil or whatever. It's so hard these days to actually identify good and evil. You know, it's so complicated. And at the end of the day, does it really matter? All we can do is respond to the extent that we can. So Banti transmitted something to us that went beyond the words and the concepts. So I've given you lots of words, lots of words. But actually, there was something else being transmitted. There was a, a belief in something behind that. There was a sense of something transcendent. I don't want to say channeling, because it's not quite the right word, but he was a channel. He is a channel for something that is beyond the mundane. We heard yesterday Nyanashuri talk about being present when the English monk Sangharakshita. He didn't. She didn't actually talk about that bit quite so much, but she was present when Banti spoke to those mourning the passing of their liberator. And then we also have Banti himself talking in my relation to the order, about the vast overshadowing consciousness that has through me founded our order and set in motion our whole movement. That vast, overshadowing consciousness is our lineage of inspiration. That's what it is. And it comes through us as well. Please be confident in that. Please believe that. It really does. It's extraordinary what comes through us. You know, Sabuti was um, talking recently about his experience of going to Hungary and working with the, the gypsy community there, the Romani community. And he was saying he realises there is nothing he can do. He doesn't speak the language. He has no sense of what he could do socially. You know, he, he, he can't build a house. He can't, you know, he, he can see the situation that they're in. He doesn't really understand the kind of political background as much as you would need to to really work in that kind of situation. But he said, nevertheless, he realises that just being there is having its effect because through him people are getting contact with the Dharma. Mm -hmm. I experience that sometimes when I'm travelling around, you know, and people are really grateful for a talk or something, and it's, you know, it's probably an okay talk. But it's not just to do with that. It's to do with me being able to somehow bring Banty life for people and keep the faith in a sense, in that vast overshadowing consciousness. And I was chatting to Rat and Darney the other day about this sort of thing, and she said, sometimes it amazes her that people still ask for ordination, even when they see order members not doing that well. I thought that was quite interesting. I think there are situations that we have where there's problems in the order, there's conflict in the order, there's people who have out with each other. There's even some quite difficult situations, you know, that... People are uh, questioning the order members, but they still are asking for ordination. So something's coming through, and I think we can really, really have confidence in that. We can serve that and keep it alive. It's hard to articulate what it is, but it's easy to feel it. I think we feel it when it's there. In Banti's talk in 99, looking ahead a little way, he talks about the stream of non-egoistic spiritual energy. Our task in a way to try and keep those lineages alive is to really participate in that stream of non-egoistic spiritual energy. He talks of the need to bring that into being as a collective project. It's amazing being here with 150 Dhammachanis. It's lovely sitting in the shrine room meditating, listening to Padma Shuri, taking us through that really beautiful Tara Sadhana. And there's, you know, You're doing it on your own because you're meditating, but actually to do it in that collective way, it brings something else into being. Bodh Gaya, Buddha Gaya, sitting under the Bodhi tree with 600 order members. It brings something else into being. So sharing our lives, common projects, finding ways of actually transmitting, strengthening, catching it and passing it on. Kissing each other in that metaphorical sense (laughs) the world's in fire I started the talk by saying that and saying that in the last week or so I felt quite in touch with that and so in a way it's been a hard talk to prepare but in another way a wonderful talk to have to be able to give I don't mean the talk was wonderful I mean it's wonderful to have the opportunity to give a talk on a lineage of inspiration because it is what the world needs it is you know, and I struggle sometimes. I think, well, it is what the world needs, but what about the refugees, you know? What can I do about that? And we all have to find our own way of answering that question. I'm not going to stand here and give an answer to it. But it's important that we ask those questions. So I'm just going to finish with um, his poems. It's uh, something I often do. <laughs> it's about. Well, I guess I'm talking really, as my tree said, about the transformation of self and other. That lineage of inspiration isn't just something. It's not only is it not just froth, it isn't something personal. It's something much beyond the personal. It's something that comes into place when the personal gets out of the way. So this poem for me speaks of that. It's the poem called The Unseen Flower. Compassion is far more than emotion. It is something that springs up in the emptiness, which is when you yourself are not there, so that you do not know anything about it. If they knew it, it would not be compassion. They can only smell the scent of the unseen flower that blooms in the heart of the void. Thank you. That's it. Oh, it's still oh, recording audio. <laughs> oh we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.